What process or mental checklist do you go through when you're determining the trustworthiness of an individual? If we think about it, trusting someone really comes down to our assessment of their character. We get to know that person and we determine whether or not their character is worthy of trust. But what is character after all? Well, character is, a, is made up of those intrinsic inner qualities of a person that determine how they think and act. A person's character is built and shaped by their worldview, by their standard of truth, and of course, most importantly, by their relationship with God. And our trust of a person is based on their character because their character tells us what we can expect from them and how they will treat us because they will act in accordance with that character. Now let's move from the thought of our trust in people to our trust in God. Our trust in God also comes from our knowledge of his character. But unlike people, God's character cannot change. Not just that it doesn't change, it cannot change. It's one of the attributes or perfections of God. People can certainly grow in their knowledge. They can come to a right relationship with Christ, and that will dramatically change their character. But the character of God is the same from eternity past to eternity future. In fact, it's his character by which we judge every other person's character. And when we speak of God's character, we're talking about his attributes, or as some call them, his perfections. Those, things, those words mean the same thing. His attributes, his perfections are the same thing. And God is worthy of our trust because he alone is perfect in his nature and in every aspect of his character. So our problem when it comes to trusting God is not a flaw in his character, but ours. When we have difficulty trusting God, it's not because he's ever in any way given us any reason to think that he will be anything other than loving, merciful, faithful, and good. It's because we still struggle with sin. And because we struggle with sin, it taints our perspective of life. So that at times we have difficulty reconciling our circumstances in life with the perfect character of God. We can't in our finite sinful brains understand at times how this particular circumstance in my life lines up with the perfect character of God. And when that happens, we have to understand that it's a blinking light telling us that our view of God is yet still too low. As believers, we have to continually be ever-growing in our understanding of the character of God. And in our text this morning in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, that's exactly what the author is going to help us to do. Because the author of Hebrews is going to introduce to us the greatest conundrum of all time and help us to see that even that great conundrum is perfectly in line with God's nature and character. But before we get there, I know it's been a few weeks since we were in Hebrews. Let me just remind you of some of the key realities and the flow of where we are, because as you know, if you've been here, we're in the middle of quite a long section here in Hebrews that began in chapter 1, verse 5, and runs all the way to chapter 2, verse 18. The theme of the book as a whole, I hope you remember, is the superiority of Christ. 
We will say it every week because it drips from every verse. The superiority of Christ and the theme that we've been unpacking over these last several weeks is that Jesus, as God's divine son, is undeniably superior to the angels. Now, there's many lessons represented here. I won't go in detail through all of these things again, but they're online. Here are the six proofs that we looked at together of Jesus' superiority to the angels. After giving us these six crucial proofs, remember he paused and gave us a warning. He gave us a warning because the gospel demands our greater attention. It brings greater consequences, and the gospel has been undeniably confirmed. Then he returned to giving us yet more proofs, further proofs that Christ is superior to the angels. Proof number seven, that dominion is not promised to angels, but instead, number eight, dominion is given to mankind. And we've been dealing with this issue of the fact that God has given dominion over creation to human beings in the garden, but what happened very quickly? Man sinned, right? And so we do not see human beings in perfect authority over all things. We see creation rebelling against the authority of man. And so we have this issue that is solved by Christ in the final proof given in this section, proof number nine, Jesus is the better Adam. And we saw that Jesus became our representative. He took on humanity in his humiliation And in his exaltation, he was resurrected and seated at the right hand of God in glory. And then finally, we saw another feature of his substitution on the cross. Jesus tasted death, he says, for everyone. He was our substitute, if you're in Christ. Now, it's that idea of substitution that the author still has in mind as we now get into our text today. The substitution of Christ, that is that he took our place on the cross in his suffering and death. And the author's going to answer now a critical question that he anticipates might come into the minds of his readers, that might come into our minds this morning as we think about the substitutionary death and atonement of Christ. Because as I said earlier, this really is the greatest conundrum in human history. If you think that your difficult circumstance is hard to reconcile with, with God's attributes, how about this? The perfect son of God was murdered on a cross. How do we reconcile that with the perfect character of God? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. That conundrum bothers some people, and it causes them to make some objections that are unbiblical and unfounded. How do we reconcile the fact that an innocent man took the punishment of the guilty? And the author anticipates this question and the objection that comes from it. If you're you're thinking in that way, here's the objection that can come from that. Isn't it an immoral act to offer one's son as a sacrifice? And isn't it immoral to punish someone for something they didn't do? Then, does it not call into question God's character to say that he gave us his son as our substitute on the cross? That's the objection 
that the author's going to address. And if you think that that is just an objection that's absurd and nobody would ever think that, this has been attacked very recently in our own culture. There was a movement that finally and thankfully is now uh, debunked and it's gone, but there was a movement called the Emergent Church Movement that was very big for a time. And in that movement, some of the leaders of that movement, a man named Brian McLaren and Rob Bell, this is not that long ago, said that the penal substitution, the idea of Jesus dying on the cross to pay for our sins as our substitute, they said that is the equivalent of divine cosmic child abuse. That's what they said. Now that's a devastating error that misunderstands the gospel at the deepest levels and that evidenced itself in those men's lives as both have abandoned whatever faith they claim to have. But that's the objection that we're going to look at and in the answer to that objection we see again the marvelous glory of God. Let's look together at our text, Hebrews 2 verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. That is our verse for this morning. I'll warn you, we're only going to make it halfway through that verse this morning because there is a lot packed into this wonderful, wonderful statement. And what we have here in verse 10 is a declaration that the author is going to spend uh, the rest of the verses through to verse 18, so 11 to 18, unpacking and giving the implications of. But we're just going to look at the declaration this morning. Here's the declaration that the author makes. Christ's suffering was fitting. Christ's suffering was fitting. Look back at the text, Hebrews 2, verse 10. He begins with that word for. For. Now, the word for always takes us backwards so that we understand what it's referring to. And specifically, he's referring to verse 9, which we studied last time. Let's read together verse 9. Hebrews 2, 9. But we do see him, that is Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that the grace of God, by by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now he's honing in specifically on this idea of substitution, of Christ tasting death for everyone. Remember, we said that Jesus is the better Adam. Our first representative, Adam, failed in the garden. Our second representative, Jesus, became the second Adam, so to speak, and lived a perfect life and offered that perfect life as a substitution on the cross for all who would come to believe in him. That substitution of Christ involved physical suffering. It involved the suffering of his physical body and also the suffering, the unimaginable suffering of experiencing the outpouring wrath, outpoured wrath of God upon himself. To taste death for everyone included unimaginable suffering. Now with that in mind, the author of Hebrews is going to make the point that that suffering of Jesus on behalf of his people is absolutely fitting. It's right. It's fitting. It's in keeping with the character of God. 
And he begins with these simple words, verse 10, for it was fitting. It was fitting. Now, this is a monumental phrase. This is an earthquake type phrase. In fact, it's not even a phrase. In the Greek text, it's one word. It was fitting. And this single word starts the sentence in the Greek language, which is a way in the Greek language of showing emphasis. This is the point. This is the emphasis of the author. It was fitting. Now, that word fitting means something is suitable or appropriate or in keeping with what is right. He uses the same word in a couple of other places that I think can help us understand the meaning here. He speaks of of godly women clothing themselves with good works rather than fine jewelry and fine clothes. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, Here's our word, as is proper, that's the same word, it was fitting, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. In Ephesians chapter 5, he uses the same word to describe believers in general as being characterized by purity. Ephesians 5, 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper, there's our word, among saints. He goes on to speak of that reality. Now, with these two examples in mind, this phrase, this word, it is fitting, means that a a certain act or action is appropriate to the kind of character a person claims to have. So, for a godly woman, it's appropriate, it's proper, it's fitting that she dresses modestly and clothes herself with good works. For a true, genuine Christian, it's proper, it's fitting for that Christian to abstain from sexual immorality. That's the idea. So, in context then, we have to answer the question, who is being spoken of? For whom is this action fitting? Look back at the text For it was fitting for him. For him. It's simply the pronoun him. And as we look at this verse in in detail, it, it can only exegetically and logically refer to God the Father. God the Father is being spoken of. Now, I want to be clear. The things that are said about God the Father here are also said about Christ in other places. But specifically in this text, in this verse, he's talking about God the Father. So now that we know who's being referred to, we have to ask the question, what is it that the author is saying is fitting or appropriate for the character of the Father? To see that, we have to skip down to another verb later in the same verse. It's the verb to perfect. Look down. So let's begin with the first phrase in verse 10, for it was fitting for him... And now he adds this sort of bracketed material, and he picks back up with the verb to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. It was fitting for God the Father, this is what he's saying, to save his people by the means of Christ's suffering on their behalf. That was appropriate, it was proper, it was perfectly in keeping with the nature and character of God for that to be his plan. 
The substitutionary sacrifice of Christ on the cross was perfectly in keeping with the character of God the Father. Far from casting any stain or blight upon the character of God, the cross of Christ is the greatest expression of the character of God. The character of God has never been more clearly seen or displayed than when Jesus Christ was hanging on that cross. It was fitting, as the author says. And any person who can't reconcile the character of God with the sacrifice of Christ has to come to the place where they understand that it is their uninformed view, their finite view that is deficient and not God himself. It's because of this deficiency that the author worries some may have, this objection, that he's going to make two monumental statements about God. He's going to describe the character of God for us with two short, these are the kind of statements that when you're just reading through the Bible, they just, you don't even see them. You just kind of go over them. And yet, there's so much truth jam-packed into these words that we cannot afford to just bump past them. Because what's going to happen here is for the rest of or this, this middle section of verse 10, he's going to make some arguments that lay a foundation for the primary argument of verse 10, which we'll study next week. But if we miss the foundation, then we will miss the power and the impact of the argument. Now, I have to tell you, these two descriptions are so immense that books, literally, I'm reading one right now, books have been written, plural, on each of these statements. I'm reading one book right now, you may have read it by John Piper, on providence. It's a whole book, it's a tome, more than a book, on one word, providence, which is one of the words we'll look at together. So we, what I'm saying is we cannot possibly exhaustively deal with either of these statements, but we have to give it our best go with the time that we have. We have to understand as much of the depths of the riches of what's being said here as possible. And so here we go. Statement number one. And remember, these are statements that are describing God himself. Okay? Look back at the text. Verse 10. For it was fitting for him, God the Father, here's our first statement, for whom are all things? For whom are all things? The statement is this. All things exist for God's glory. All things exist for God's glory. The words for whom indicate that this statement is to be applied to that pronoun him who is God the Father. So he's speaking of God the Father here. So for whom all things, those two words, they're simple, short little words, but they're intentionally exhaustive and inclusive. Encapsulated in those two words, all things, is every molecule in the created universe in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth. All things in both the physical and spiritual realm. So quite literally, if you were to say, well, what about, and fill in the blank, the answer would be yes, that too. All of them. Whatever you can think of, all of it is contained in these two words, all things. And so now we have to deal with the verb, the word are. For whom are all things. Now, actually, that word's not in the Greek text because often that verb of being, the word is or are, is just left out and it's assumed, as is the case here. But it's obviously meant 
Here's how the Greek text literally reads. It says, for whom all and through whom all. For whom all and through whom all. But the point is that of existence. Every single thing has God as the goal and purpose of its existence. Specifically, what that means is that all things exist both in heaven and on earth for the glory of God. That is the primary purpose and reason that you and I are alive and that everything else exists. It is for both the manifestation and exaltation of the glory of God. So obviously that brings up a very important question. What is God's glory? If that's why I'm here and that's why you're here, then it's pretty important that we know what that word glory means, isn't it? If you look up glory in a dictionary, it's probably going to tell you that glory means something like splendor. And that's not inaccurate. In fact, just like any other word, depending on the context, it can mean different things. Glory can mean sort of brilliance or splendor. It's used that way in the scripture, specifically when it's talking about a physical, outward, visible manifestation of God's glory. If you think about it, when people see God's glory in scripture, what do they see? Bright, blazing light. Sometimes it's fire, right? But it's something bright, it's something blazing, it's splendor. And so that is the the meaning in the sense of the visible, physical uh, glory of God. But it's not really a full definition of God's glory. To help us with this, Piper gives the definition of of God's glory as the, the sum total of his perfections. The sum total of his perfections or attributes. What he's saying is that the glory of God consists of every aspect of who he is by nature. It's the full package, his holiness, his omnipotence, omniscience, grace, justice, wrath, love, mercy, etc. The full package of who God is, that is his glory. And so that brilliance or that visible manifestation of God is a symbol to communicate the absolute transcendence and perfection of God. It's a way for us visibly to see this being is far above anything and anyone I've ever imagined in all my life. So when the author tells us here of the glory of God, he's, he's helping us even to understand our purpose, and even when you think about it, the how do we give God glory? That's a phrase we'll say sometimes, give, give God the glory. What does that mean? It can't mean just this, give God more splendor, more brilliance. It can't be that because God actually can't have any more glory than he already has. He has all the glory that there is to be had. So to give God glory means that we recognize God as he's revealed himself to be and we glorify him as such. We declare back to God, you are good and beautiful and perfect and all-powerful and sovereign and just and full of mercy and love and truth. That is to give glory to God. It's to praise God for who he is and who he has said he is in the scriptures. What the author says here is that For whom are all things. That means you, me, your pet, your car, 
The wind, the sun, the ants, and the plants all have as their ultimate purpose and end the revelation and exaltation of the glory of God. That's why they're here. So that the wonder of God, the perfections of his nature, might be revealed and exalted appropriately. This is what the psalmist was getting at in Psalm 19.1 when he says the heavens are telling, listen to that, he's giving voice to creation. The heavens are, they're telling of the glory of God and their expanse is, here we go again, declaring the work of his hands. What is he saying? All of creation, they exalt the glory of God. They manifest and exalt the glory of God. Let me ask you, Is this how you think about your life? Is your life consumed with gaining a better understanding of and responding with greater worship to the glory of God? See, this is a perspective that must affect everything we do in life. Every breath you take reveals and exalts the glory of God. Every time your heart beats, the glory of God is manifested and exalted When you use the physical or mental abilities that God has given you to work hard and provide for your family or to teach your children, the glory of God is revealed and exalted. When a sinner comes to repentance and faith and is regenerated and made new, the glory of God is revealed and exalted. When one Christian progresses even one iota in holiness and sanctification, the glory of God is revealed and exalted. When you attend a wedding, celebrate a birth, when you enjoy wholesome entertainment, eat the fruit of your labor, laugh with your children, cry with the grieving, the glory of God is revealed and exalted. Now you might still be trying to piece this together and ask, how do all of these things manifest and exalt the glory of God? It's because the creation reveals truth about the creator. When we look at what God has made, it tells us something about God as the one who made it. When you use your physical and mental abilities to work hard and provide for your family, it reveals the glory of God because he is the one who gave you that physical strength and that mental ability. When you enjoy the relationship of a husband and wife, it is he who gave you the gift of marriage. When you bounce that giggling baby on your knee, it is he who gave to your family the gift of life. That human life is because of his hand. When you weep with those who are weeping, it is he who made you in his image so that you can come alongside and have empathy and compassion and express that to another person. And that gives glory to God. You see, we have to look at every event and every aspect of life on the planet through the lens of the glory of God. If you're here this morning and you're beat down and drowning under the stressors and disappointment and trials of life, could it be that perhaps it's because you failed to recognize the point of it all? If the point of life is personal happiness, personal health, and personal wealth, then yes, There will be ample reason for depression, for despair, for stress, for anger and disappointment. But if the goal of life is the revelation and exaltation of the glory of God, then that mission can be accomplished in and through whatever circumstance God brings into your life. 
And only when we have that perspective can we really live the joy-filled, godly lives in an ungodly world that God has designed us to live. Let me give you an example of how this perspective can transform a real-life situation. Let's say you've worked hard in your company for many years and you've had your eye on a particular promotion that you would really enjoy. And after years of hard work, that promotion finally comes available. And so you put in your application along with several other applicants. And and you have a high level of confidence that you have the necessary resume and experience to earn that promotion. But after going through several rounds of interviews, you are shocked to find that they have chosen to go with a different candidate, but not just a different candidate, but someone who's been at the company five years less than you, and you find out later that this person is actually the cousin of the company's owner. A great feeling of injustice begins to well up inside you as you mull over just how unfair your situation is. And as you're contemplating these things, a coworker comes over to your desk who's also applied for the role and they are visibly livid. And they've come to your desk with the anticipation of finding a kindred spirit who's experienced the same injustice so that they can spew all of the anger and vitriol they wish that they could to their boss on you and your desk. As a believer, you have an incredible opportunity in that moment. You can either act like a worldly unbeliever and join right in the gossip and hateful speech, or you can respond with joyful trust in the sovereign goodness of your God and take that opportunity to point your coworker to the true and greater treasure of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. But the only way that you will respond that way is by the power of the Holy Spirit working within you as you put on the lens of God's glory. And say, this is not about me and my job. This happened to me because I have an opportunity to declare the glory of God to this person that they might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that soul not worth more than that promotion? But that's how we have to see the world. Through the lens of the glory of God. It's not about me. It's not about my health, my wealth, my desires. Even though God in his kindness gives us many of those things. It's ultimately about his glory, his kingdom, and his exaltation. The author says, for whom are all things. Christian, let me encourage all of us to tattoo those words on the back of our eyelids so that when we close our eyes in the moments of greatest joy and of greatest pain, we will be reminded that this too is designed by the masterful hand of the universe and it is for his glory. It's important to realize that in adding this descriptive statement of God, the author's not taking us away from his main point. If you feel like we're over here in in, in left field, um, we're not. Because what he's doing is he's building a foundation for what he wants to say. Here's the logic. If all things are for the glory of God, that must include what? The suffering of his son on the cross. He points us to the exhaustive nature of the glory of God so that he might bring us to one specific moment in history and say, this too then is fitting. This too fits within the character of God and the exaltation of his glory. 
the very substitutionary death of his own son. In fact, as I said before, there is actually no other event in human history in which the glory of God is revealed and exalted more clearly than the cross of Jesus Christ. This is why it was so fitting for God to do this. I want you to think with me for a moment. Think about the cascade of God's attributes or perfections that are highlighted and exalted at the cross. In fact, that's your assignment this week. I want you to think of every one of God's attributes that you see in the cross. I've come up with a really short list. This is not exhaustive. You can add to it. You should add to it. But think about it. At the cross, we see the sovereignty of God, the love of God, the wrath of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the faithfulness of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God, the holiness of God, the compassion of God, and the justice of God, and many others colliding here in this one act of God in giving his son as a substitute on the cross for sinners. So that when the cross of Christ is understood rightly, it is the height of arrogance and foolishness to say that this act on behalf of God brings a stain upon his character. Far from being a stain on the character of God, the author of Hebrews says it's completely in keeping with his nature. It's completely in keeping with his character. It too falls under the grand purpose for all things. It brings glory to God. Friends, let me invite you to join me this morning in marveling at the glory of God in Christ on the cross. I want you to picture with me the Son of God hanging on the cross. Go there in your mind. See him there. Use your sanctified imagination. Go with me. See him there. See the open, gaping wounds of Christ. See the blood of Christ dripping from his feet and pooling on the ground. See the blood of Christ rolling into his eyes with the no ability to wipe it away. Hear him say, as he experiences for the very first time in his humanity, anything other than perfect harmony and fellowship with the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now consider that this was his willful choice. That Jesus not only humbly went to the cross, he planned to go to the cross. He was born to go to the cross as he told his disciples, I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay it down. No one takes it from me and I will take it up again. Hear him pray to the Father on behalf of his accusers as he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And now consider the fact that if you're a Christian here this morning, he did that to purchase your redemption. Never has the glory of God been more manifest and clearly and poignantly seen than in the suffering of the Son. If you're here this morning and you've never come to know the saving grace of God and salvation, I invite you to see him there. See him on the cross. Understand that the Bible says you are a sinner, just like me and everyone else. You've broken the law of God, and you deserve his punishment for your sin. If he gave you what you deserved, it would be his eternal punishment. But in his son, he's expressed his grace to us in a marvelous way because his son lived the perfect life we failed to live 
and then freely offered it on the cross as a substitute to pay for the wrath of God that you and I had earned. And then he rose again victorious over the grave, and he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What he says is, come to me repenting of your sins, putting your faith in me alone as your only hope of salvation, not in your goodness, not in your own abilities, but in Christ alone, and you will be saved. And this glorifies God. Don't waste the opportunity, friends, to see him there on the cross this morning. All things exist for the glory of God, and certainly that must include the suffering of his son, but there's a second statement here in this text, a second description of God. Look at the text first, verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things. This second statement says this, all things exist by God's providence. All things exist by God's providence and through whom are all things. It's important to note that these two statements are frequently found together in the scripture. We see them in Romans 11, beginning in verse 33, where Paul is is giving glory to God after this long discussion of Romans 9 to 11. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He says it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. He says, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. There he adds both the Father and the Son. So we have to answer the question, what is the distinction that the author is making between the first statement and the second? The first statement describes the fact that all things exist for the glory of God. The second statement describes the fact that all things have come into existence by the providence of God. So statement number one describes the end for which all things exist. Statement number two describes the means by which all things exist. Notice again the word whom. This must refer back to him, God the Father, for whom, meaning God, through means the means by which all things were created. And again, we have the words all things. The same inclusivity that was expressed the first time those words were used is meant here again. So whatever point's being communicated here, it applies again to every single created person, object, and event in human history. The point the author makes here is that God has not only created all things, but sustains and directs all things by the means of providence. Now we have to stop and make sure we understand what that word providence means. It may not be a word you are familiar with. And I have to admit, providence is not a word that you'll find in the Bible. 
Providence is instead a word that theologians have come up with to try to wrap our our hands around something we see all over the scripture. It's just not given a name. We see it on every page of the Bible, but it needs a name for us to talk about it. And that name is the word providence. Here's a definition of providence. This is by Burkhoff. You can find one in, in any good systematic theology. It says, providence is that continued exercise of the divine energy whereby the creator, listen to these words, preserves all his creatures, number one. Number two, is operative in all that comes to pass in the world. And finally, and directs all things to their appointed end. Let me see if I can say that more more simply. We talk about God being sovereign. Sovereignty describes who God is. He is the ruler of all things. He has complete power and control. Providence is a word we use to describe how he exercises his sovereignty in real time in the lives of people. Okay, providence is the outworking of the fact that God is sovereign over all things. It explains that all things are ordained and predestined, but they are ordained by a sovereign, good, and loving God. Understand, we, we are not robots. God has not created us as robots, but as human beings, whom he allows to make real choices for which we are accountable But here's the good news. He works in and through those choices to accomplish his eternal plan that was decreed before the world began. When you picture God and his plan coming to pass, do not picture this mechanical, stale process in which we all robotically fulfill our design. Instead, picture the hand of a master painter mixing and matching a myriad of colors and hues and then moving his paintbrush methodically, intentionally across his canvas to produce with each perfect stroke exactly what he intends so that in the end what will result is a masterpiece of redemption that brings ultimate glory to God. That is what God is doing through his providence. The true reality that it's as expressed in this phrase that all things are through God the Father is honestly deeper and more marvelous than our finite brains will ever be able to comprehend. Understand that if you, in thinking about the sovereignty of God, feel like you hit a wall at a certain point, that's on purpose. That's called being a human being who is finite, trying to understand a God who is transcendent. We all hit that wall. But it doesn't mean it's not valuable to think on these things because it is what the scripture reveals. In fact, even for those of us who love and celebrate the doctrine of God's providence, we often fall woefully short in our thoughts of this doctrine. When we think of God's providence, we often think of a story like this one. This is not a true story, but hopefully a good story. Think of this. A man walks down to the beach to feel the warm ocean waves wash over his feet. And as he's there, his heart is distressed as he contemplates his his life and he wonders, what has it all been for? The longer he thinks, the more convinced he is that his life's been a waste. It's all worthless. And he wonders if he should just end it all and be done. 
But as he contemplates this dark reality, he's startled as he feels something bump into his foot. And he looks down and discovers that what has bumped into his foot is a a glass bottle. And upon further examination, there's something inside that bottle. There's a note inside the bottle. And so he hurriedly opens that bottle and pulls out the note and and is astonished to find that these must have been the last words of a, a shipwrecked sailor who wrote these words knowing it would be his final message. And as he reads those words, it reveals the glories of the gospel of Jesus and calls anyone who's reading this letter to repent and believe the gospel. And that man falls on his face there on that beach, confesses his sins and his faith in Christ, and is saved. Now, far too often, Christians, when we think about providence, we reduce it down to these kinds of stories and events. And we picture that little bottle floating on the waves, miles offshore, and all that God did to providentially move that bottle so that it landed on that beach at that time when that man was there. And in thinking this way, our thoughts are not incorrect. You are right. If that story were true, it would be because God providentially moved that bottle to that place at that time so that that man would read that letter. So that's not incorrect, it's just insufficient. It doesn't go far enough. Because what the author is saying here in Hebrews is that God does not just interject his providential workings at certain moments in history. The true understanding of providence, according to the author of Hebrews here, is that not only was God sovereignly directing the movement of that bottle on the waves, he was sovereignly directing and sustaining every water molecule in the ocean and every fish underneath the bottle in the sea and every bird flying overhead and every cloud looming in the sky and every ray of sunshine that made it through. God was providentially controlling the movement of every grain of sand as it was lifted by every wave and then placed specifically back in a new location. He was sovereignly producing and controlling every single wave, and not just the waves, but every bubble in the foam on the top of every wave was controlled by the sovereign hand of God. He was controlling every gust of wind. He was controlling every beat of that man's heart. He was sovereignly in control of every hair that floated away from his head unnoticed. You see, it's not that we are wrong to think of God doing these amazing things by his providence. He does do those things, but understand he does everything. The chair you're sitting on holds together because he providentially sustains it. You and I have made it living through this service because he providentially sustains it. His providence is everywhere. He says all things are through him, through him. Every second of every day in every place in the universe, it's sovereignly directed by the hand of God. And what we will find in the end is a beautiful tapestry of God's grace and sovereign goodness in which he has woven together this plan of redemption for his glory that he declared before the world began. That's what he's doing by his providence. Understand, this is hard, but this is true. God's providence includes the best things that have happened in human history and the darkest days of human history. 
As mind-boggling as that is, the Bible unashamedly teaches that God is in control of all things, even the terrible things, and he uses them to accomplish his sovereign good purposes. Some things God brings to pass by his active will, other things he brings to pass by his passive will in allowing human beings to make sinful choices and Satan to make sinful choices, but all of them ultimately are under the umbrella of the sovereignty of God. This is why Joseph rightly said to his brothers when they repented of their sin before him in Genesis 50:20, he says these very helpful words. He says to them, "As for you, you brothers meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good." Notice that refers to the same event. Brothers, you meant your actions against me for evil, but God meant the same actions against me for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. The same action towards Joseph had one intention by those human beings, his brothers, and they were responsible for their sin against their brother, and yet God passively allowed that as part of his divine decree to bring about his ultimate good end result of bringing many alive and ultimately saving the people of Israel through whom Christ would come and we ultimately would be redeemed. Now what does that have to do with the argument here in Hebrews as we draw this to a close? As I said before, the author is anticipating that some will take offense at the idea of God the Father ordaining the substitutionary death of his son. And so he wants us to understand that the problem again is not the character of God, but our finite, limited understanding of God. He says not only was the suffering of Christ done by the providential sovereign hand of God, Everything in history is done by the providential sovereign hand of God and it's still absolutely fitting with his character. That's what the Bible teaches. If you struggle to believe that God has ordained all things for the purpose of his glory, including those things that are evil in the world, you need to consider again the context in which these words are said. What is the point of this foundation that he is building? It is to prove the suffering of the Son of God to accomplish the salvation of sinners. There has never been and will never be a greater travesty or display of human evil than that day when men murdered the perfect Son of God. It doesn't get more evil than that. No no, uh, historical reference you can think of displays human evil and sin more than that moment and yet God says I ordain that to bring about the redemption of many sons and daughters it was fitting so finally what does this mean for you and me I boiled it down to just one admonition trust in God's providence Trust in God's providence. Are you beaten down by the stressors, trials, disappointments of life in a fallen world? When things fall apart in your life or in the life of one that you love, are you tempted to either whisper or shout to God, Where are you, God? What are you doing, God? 
How can this be your plan? When you're tempted in any situation to question either God's character or his care and involvement in your life, turn your mind again to the cross of Christ. Is this darkness in your life as dark as that day? If God could bring about such unimaginable good from such unthinkable evil, can he not also bring good from your trial and difficulty and darkness in life? Absolutely, he can. Not only can he, but understand what we've studied today are the theological underpinnings of one of the most famous verses of Scripture that Christians have turned to for years for comfort when things aren't going well. Romans 8, 28. And we know, listen to that, not and we think, we hope, and we know. Why do we know? Because all things are for his glory and all things are by his providential hand. And we know that God causes all things. You see that? God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. The reason that's true is because of what the author has explained to us today. And so what needs to happen for us in the midst of our greatest days and our darkest days is to make sure that our thinking is aligned with God's thinking, that we see the world the way God sees the world, Trust his providence to bring about the maximum spiritual good in your life, the maximum opportunity for the expansion of his kingdom to the maximum praise of the glory of his name. That is what he's accomplishing through his providence, Christian. And it's that that allows us to have joy and comfort in the midst of unthinkable sorrow. That's what allows us to preach the gospel to other people from our pain is when we understand it's not wasted. It's not haphazard. It's not random. It's intended by the hand of a good God for good purposes, some of which I may never know, but I can trust his heart. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord God, that is a text that on many accounts is difficult. It stretches us, stretches our brains. It stretches our feeble thoughts of you. But then at the same time, it's incredibly, incredibly comforting to know that this is the God we serve. The God who cares for us, who is intimately involved in our lives. You're not far away, often only in heaven, decreeing things to happen, but uninvolved with our individual lives. But through your providence, by the power of the Spirit, you are at work in us, through us, around us, causing all things to accomplish the appointed end for which you've made them. And they will accomplish it. And that one day will culminate in the day that we see you face to face. And we live with you in a place where there is no more sin, no more sorrow, suffering, or pain, where no one dares question your character. But until that day, God, help us to be faithful. Help us to trust you one step at a time, one day at a time, knowing that all things are for your glory and by your hand for eternal good. May we trust it even in our darkest of days. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.